Imagine having everything that you ever wanted. What would that include? Would it include money, fame, maybe beauty, strength, power, respect? What about lost children found? What about peace on earth? I think a lot of us want that right now, and we don't see a lot of that right now. You would think that if you had everything that you ever wanted, that you would be content, right? We read last week that Jacob stood before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in all the world. He stood before him and he said, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Jacob's life was not easy. Not easy. But by the end of chapter 47, things had changed in in a dramatic way. Having accepted his son Joseph's invitation, he now lacked nothing. At 147 years old, he had it all. He had his son's back. He had his family all living in the same land together. Financially, he was set. He had no worries whatsoever. He lived in a virtual paradise. It was one of the most lush lands in all of Egypt. He spent 17 years of his life experiencing the very best that Egypt had to offer, and yet Jacob was discontent. How could you be discontent with all of that? Are you content? In the still and quiet moments where all the hustle and bustle, all the clutter, and even the treasures and trophies that you've amassed in life, when those fade to the background, what lingering discontentment comes into focus? Normally, when we talk about discontentment, it's a bad thing, right? It's something that's motivated by selfishness. It's something that is looked down upon. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote in Philippians 4.12, he gives us the impression that discontentment is not necessarily a good thing. As he says, I've learned the secret to being content in whatever the circumstances. So obviously, being content is far superior to being discontent. We're discontent when... We don't think that our houses are big enough or our cars are nice enough. We're discontent when we see something new and we want that. Or we see what others have and we don't and we want that. We're discontent when we look at the system. The system and the leaders that are over it. And we see their faults and their flaws and their failures. And we go, I am not satisfied with that or with that person. And until they transition out and somebody new transitions in, well, I'm not going to be happy. Our discontentment, it's often fueled by unmet desires, right? It's often fueled by cravings. And it often results in things like envy, bitterness, jealousy, a whole host of other vices. But Jacob's discontentment, his discontentment with Egypt... That wasn't because he was bored. What if I told you that there's actually a discontentment that isn't such a bad thing? You see, Jacob's discontentment was grounded in something very, very good, very, very important. Jacob's discontentment, it was grounded in faith, and it was fueled by what he loved most. 
in Hebrews 11.21 were pointed in that direction. You know Hebrews 11, maybe you don't know. Hebrews 11 lists off all of the different people throughout biblical history who were people of faith. They trusted God. It wasn't that they were great in and of themselves, but because they trusted God, God did things through their lives. And sometimes it was, it was spectacular things, awesome things. And we go, wow, that's amazing. Well, it's because of faith. Jacob is listed among them. Listen to what it says about Jacob. Verse 21 of Hebrews 11, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Out of all the things that Jacob did in his years, 147 years of going and coming, of doing things, what we read here in Genesis 47 and 48, our passage this morning, that is singled out as the most important thing in his life. It's what he's remembered by. And I think it has to do with who Jacob was. You see, when we first start reading about Jacob, we realize that he was a heel grabber, right? A heel grabber. He was someone who would do anything and everything to get what he wanted out of life. And he moves from that to being a person who used his last remaining days on this earth not to mourn the difficult days that he mentioned to Pharaoh. Not to say, woe is me, it's been such a hard life, what a tragedy my life is. No, 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 that's not what it's about. But instead, he uses his last moments here on earth to refocus his attention on God's plan for the future. He stood there on the threshold, separating this life from the next life, and we see that Jacob had actually already crossed over. He had exchanged the treasures of this life for those of the next. And his trust in things that are, that are in this world for things, really, a person who is out of this world. Jacob's superior love for God and radical discontentment with the world, it's evidenced as at the end of his life, his treasure and trust, they cross over from what is temporal to what is eternal. I want to show you what I mean by that and then ask you a soul-searching question. And that question is this, have you crossed over? Have you exchanged treasure and trust in the world for treasure and trust in God? At 147 years old, Jacob had come to a point where his love for God, it surpassed everything else. Uh, chapter 47, 27 says this, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And so there in Egypt, Jacob had come to the point where he had everything he ever wanted. Life was good. Those evil days were over. In the 17 years that he lived in Goshen, you would think that all of those 130 years passed, they just 
start becoming a distant memory, just fading into the past. In fact, that's a chapter, you know, I never want to reread because this chapter is so much better. Thank goodness those days are over. Days of wandering, days of family strife, days of fear and deception and scandal and violence, days of mourning, days of hunger. I don't want to go back to those days. Thank goodness they're long gone. Long live the new world. Egypt was a new world for Jacob and his family, but Jacob knew. He knew something. He knew this wasn't their final destination. This wasn't it. So for him, there was this ever-present discontentment with Egypt. Yeah, this is great, but I know there's something coming. Even though he knew that he would die in the land of Egypt, it says Joseph would close his eyes in Egypt, he looked forward to something more, something better on the way. Look at verse 29. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. But let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he, Joseph, swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. (laughs) As rich as the treasures were in Egypt, Jacob knew there was something better. Pharaoh had offered him and his family the world, but God was offering something that was out of this world. So as a clear statement to his family, a statement that said, you know what, this good life is not it, he asks to be brought back to the cave at Machpelah in Hebron where Abraham and where his father Isaac were buried. He wanted his family to know that the promises of God still stood. They were still God's people, and they still had a special purpose. In fact, it was a world-changing purpose. Don't get too comfortable here, family. Don't forget the promise. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget your God who has given you a hope and a future. Egypt is great. But the treasure that it has to offer you, it's only temporary. So set your sights, set your hopes on God. Jacob had crossed from valuing what is temporal to valuing what is eternal, to longing for the the treasure that God had promised him. His superior love for God, that is, his love for God above all other things that led him to be discontent with the world and long for the next. Where are your sights set? Where are your eyes fixed? Are you living for the paradise that God has promised? Or are you longing to find paradise here on earth? And maybe you're here enduring this season that we're enduring in our world, and you're, you're feeling the paradise that you were trying to build just pried from your grasp. Maybe you're going through a sense of mourning, a sense of discontentment, but it's not because you're looking forward to a land that's coming. It's because you're seeing the good land that you were working so hard to build here for maybe yourself or maybe your family. 
and it's falling to pieces. We're living in a time of mourning. All those hopes and dreams, so many of them, longing for a good and better world, well, that's just fading away. We see the unrest. We feel the division, the anger, the self-focused ambition of people. We see the violence, and we suspect ill-intended scheming taking place behind closed doors and among very powerful leaders. And then you see the video footage of what happened in Beirut. Have you seen the explosion? Maybe you're like me. You see that and you just go, yep. That's what 2020 feels like. Everything is just being leveled. We feel like we're in one of those kind of end of days movies, those disaster flicks. But it's here, and it's real. My friends, it's time to cross over. It's time to cross over and exchange your dreams of earthly treasure for treasure that is eternal. It's time to recalibrate, to recalculate, to live all out now, not for this life, but for the next life. Maybe you've heard those commercials on the radio, and they're telling you, you know, if you don't have enough financial planner, you need to find one because you might have investments, you might have a retirement account, but you know what? The investments where your money was before, well, those things are crumbling. And so you need to reinvest your money now, and you need a financial planner who can help show you what are the good investments to make because this is a different world we're in now. May I say, that's far too short-sighted. Far too short-sighted. What we need to do is think like Jacob. And we need to cross over from investing here and invest in what is eternal. And that may mean spending less time and less effort and less money building a life for yourself here on earth so that you can give, it, give yourself fully to living all out for the glory of God. So if you're in school, maybe consider classes and degrees that are going to best help you and prepare you to use your gifts and your abilities for God's purposes and not your own. If you're unmarried, then maybe instead of thinking about, um, if you're unmarried, maybe you're thinking about uh, using your singleness now uh, for, for God's purposes, for the glory of God and the good of others. Maybe if you're unmarried and you want to get married, you're not just looking around for someone who's going to give you maximum pleasure, but instead you're looking for someone who can partner with you in, in the work uh, of God's kingdom. And if you're a parent, you still have children at home. Think about how you can pour your lives into your children so that they can grow up knowing who made them, who loved them who saved them, who's offered them a hope and a future. If you're a parent, maybe you're looking at your world right now and you're, you're saying, what kind of future is there for my children? You need to be proclaiming to your children that this is not it. There's something better. Live your life all out for what's coming, not for this. If you're retired, Maybe prayerfully consider the possibility that the, the days and the resources that you have left, they might be better spent contributing to things that will last for eternity rather than a few fleeting pleasures or, or checking off those lists 
those items on your bucket list. Colossians 3 urges, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. It's time to cross over. It's time. Jacob's superior love for God and radical discontentment with this world, his evidence is at the end of his life, what he treasured crossed over from the temporal to the eternal. And the same thing went for his trust. Look at chapter 48, verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. This is the first time illness is mentioned in the Bible, by the way. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength, sat up in bed, and uh, Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz. Luz is the same as Bethel. In the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and will give you this land, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And so nearing the end, he's frail, he's ill. It takes everything in his power just to sit up. And then he begins to tell Joseph and his two sons of the promise that was made to Abraham and to Isaac, and to him. And God's original plan for the, for the population, for people to be fruitful and multiply. What, what, what Jacob is saying here is, this thing that I'm talking about here, this isn't some one-off kind of side mission here. No, this is fundamental to the existence of the human race. What their family has been singled out for has to do with everyone, and it's fundamental to their past, their present, and their future. And so being a part of this family, Jacob's family, this mission, this work that God intended them to do, that far surpassed Any other goals that might be out there, any other goals, any other earthly kingdom, Jacob wanted Joseph's sons to be a part of that. But you know, being half Egyptian, it was more than just a possibility that Ephraim and Manasseh would be swooped up into Egyptian culture, into the Egyptian way of life. And I imagine Pharaoh had his eyes on these two boys. They are the first two sons of the superstar. I mean, Pharaoh was, was king. He was number one. Joseph was second. But you know what? Joseph, I think, fame-wise, far surpassed Pharaoh because he's the savior of the world. The world was crying out in hunger pains, saying, we are dying. Parents were looking at their children starving to death, and they brought them to Joseph, and they said, Joseph, we need food. And Joseph said, I got it. I'm taking care of you. Joseph saved everyone, and his renown went through the roof. If there, there was no one more famous in all of the world than Joseph. And now he's had two boys. 
And I can just see Pharaoh looking at them and saying, these boys, you know, Joseph, he's got these loyalties to this Hebrew God, you know, he's a great guy and he's done some really great things, but these two boys are going to be Egyptian. I'm going to take them under my wing. They're going to walk in the footsteps of greatness and in, by the light of the morning and the evening star. I think Jacob's sons were destined for greatness. But Jacob and Joseph knew that there was something greater for their lives. Something far greater, far bigger that they could be a part of. Look at what Jacob says in verse 5. He says, And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. You know what Jacob is suggesting here? He's suggesting an adoption. This is an adoption. He's saying, I want Ephraim and Manasseh not to be my grandsons. I want them to be my sons. In essence, they're going to replace Reuben, and they're going to replace Simeon. If you'll remember back, uh, Reuben got into some stuff that he shouldn't have, and it, it hurt it hurt his reputation with his dad. Jacob wanted their birthright to be given to Joseph's boys. And you know what this would do? It would separate them from Egypt. It would take them away from their identity as Joseph's sons. Sons of the superstar. No longer now they're going to be sons of the shepherd. This was going to solidify their place under Jacob and as children of the promise. This was a really big deal. We mentioned earlier, this is the single most important act of faith in Jacob's life. Hebrews 11.21 says that. And it says that this is an act of worship. We so often think of singing or maybe even a few other things. But here, Jacob is calling these boys to himself and wanting to adopt them. And this is worship. And Jacob makes this monumental effort to bless the sons of jo Joseph. And he demonstrates in it, his love for God is superior to everything else. His grandsons, they could have been great. And what grandfather wouldn't want his grandsons to be great? But here, Jacob makes it clear, you have a higher calling, boys. You have a higher calling. In fact, I want to pull you away from your father's inheritance, and I want you to receive my inheritance. I am I'm giving on, I'm placing on you an incredible blessing. And everyone else would have said, no, 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 no. This is the most foolish thing I have ever seen in my life. And yet Jacob had come to know that this was anything but foolish. Like that missionary who would come thousands of years after him, give his life in service to God the King, he would say, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. 
both Jacob and Joseph's superior love for God and their radical discontentment with the world. It's evidenced as their trust crossed over from what is temporal, the things on, on this earth, things in this life, the power, the prestige, the fame, the, the money, to what is eternal. And that trust is even more clearly seen in what happened next. Many scholars believe that the language used in the next few verses, it, 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 it's typical of a formal adoption process. And so Jacob asks, who are these? Much like a pastor would ask in a wedding, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And Joseph replies, they are my sons, whom God has given me here. Notice Joseph says, yeah, they're mine, Who is the one who gave them to him? So who really has the ownership here? He held that loosely, didn't he? Then we read, they're brought forward before Jacob. Now Jacob's eyes, they were were almost blind. It seems like he could make out some figures here, something. He knew that Joseph was there and, and the two sons were there. And Joseph, he lines the boys up. So that Jacob's hand would fall, his right hand would fall upon the oldest. It would fall upon Manasseh. And his left hand would fall upon Ephraim. Manasseh would be the one who receives the lion's share of the blessing. He would be the oldest. He would be the receiver of the, of the inheritance. But Jacob does something here. And it's very remarkable what he does. Verse 14 says this. In Israel, that's Jacob stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has, had redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Did you catch that? Jacob crosses over his arms so that his right hand rests on the head of Ephraim. His left hand rests on the older son, Manasseh. Now, worldly wisdom, worldly custom, in fact, in in any nationality, in any tribe, in any group, it would have demanded that the oldest son be the one to receive the greater blessing, the more significant inheritance, the, the birthright. In fact, immediately after Jacob finishes speaking the blessing, Joseph speaks up and he says, whoa, not in this way, my father, since this is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. He probably thought, well, Jacob just, he he just made a mistake here. He doesn't realize that this is the oldest here, but no, Jacob knew exactly what he was doing. And he made it very clear in that moment that his trust was not in human customs human traditions, human expectations, or logic, or wisdom. It wasn't on any of that. None of that stuff mattered. His trust was in God. And so he was going to do what God wanted him to do because he loved God more than anyone else. Verse 19 says, But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I I know. He also shall become a people, 
and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel will pronounce blessing, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. And so it was Jacob's trust in God that led him to give the blessing. Not the blessing that he desired. Not the blessing that Joseph desired, but the one that God moved him to give. I like what one pastor wrote. He just says, he was only the messenger. He was just doing what God wanted him to do. Then Jacob, after that, he points Joseph to the one that he must now and continue to trust later. He says in verse 21, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. I like what one commentator writes. He he writes this, It had taken Jacob a lifetime of divine discipline to learn that he must only speak and do the word of God. Now he dared to trust God and believe his plans were best. He dared to do God's will despite the wishes of his illustrious godly son. Jacob had his anchor into the will of God forever. The crossing over of this frail, this ill, this 147-year-old man is put on display. There's a otherworldly a logic-defying, convention-rejecting, downright astonishing trust in God here, isn't there? It doesn't matter what anyone else says. I'm doing what God wants me to do. It testifies to his superior love for God and his dissatisfaction with, the, with this weary, wayward world that he lived in. Where's your trust? Where's your trust? Is the ground which we want thought was so steady and secure now seems to turn to shifting sand are you crossing over to stand on a foundation that's sure that's steady if you're listening to this message and you haven't you haven't exchanged your trust in politics and people and prosperity or health and happiness or or in your own creativity or your own strength If you haven't exchanged that for Christ's sufficiency to wash you clean, to forgive you your sin, restore you to good standing with your Maker, and secure for you a future in eternity, you need to do that right now. Right now. Just like Jacob's sons, maybe it's time for you to step across the room and be adopted into the family of God. Maybe it's time for you to experience what it means to be a child of the promise, to stand on solid ground, knowing that you've been made right with your maker and look forward to that hope and that future that isn't dependent on the next presidential election, that isn't dependent upon the next stimulus package, but on the unshakable, unchanging promises of God. In the quiet of your heart, say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I've treasured and I've trusted in things that will not last and have no power 
to save me. I want to cross over and place my trust in you. What you did on the cross and taking my sin upon yourself and paying for all of it right there so that I could be clean and forgiven. And now that you've risen from the dead, Jesus, give me new life, a new hope, and a new home in eternity with you. If that's you, would you do that now? You won't regret it. Because what is temporal is fading. It's temporal. It's time for you to cross over into what is eternal. And for those of you who have already done that, you've already placed your trust in Christ, you've already crossed over and been adopted into the family of God, are you continually, each and every day, crossing over your treasure and your trust so that it might be found in what is eternal instead of in what's not? Are we loving our Lord God like Jacob did, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind? Are we living our lives as an act of worship as we look forward to the new world He has prepared before us and holding loosely to the things that won't last? Are we trusting in Him who holds the world in His hands rather than the wisdom and the ways of the people that think that they do? question I keep asking myself is how far am I willing to cross over? I placed my trust in Christ a long time ago, but each and every day I have before me how far I'm willing to go. What if treasuring and trusting God meant going on a mission trip rather than going on that vacation? What if it meant scrapping your plans, maybe big plans, that you've had for a long, long time, and you've invested in them, scrapping them for God's plans? What if it meant not buying that thing that you've been waiting for, that you've been saving for, that you might give to somebody in need? What if it meant stepping out of your comfort zone and, and boldly and courageously stepping out to, to, to reach out to somebody else? What if it meant laying down your pride and your rights and your sense of entitlement, your sense of justice to extend grace and, to for, and forgiveness to someone who's wronged you? What if it meant praying for those that you disagree with? rather than just shelling out criticism? What if it simply meant just setting aside your worries, your anxieties, to sit alone, quietly cast your cares on the one who cares for you, and let his words saturate, saturate your mind and encourage your soul? Jacob's superior love for God and his radical discontentment with the world, it's evidenced is at the end of his life, his treasure and his trust, they cross over from what is temporal to what is eternal. And in the same way, we worship God when our treasure and trust cross over from what is temporal to what is eternal. Crossing over, it's an act of worship. One of the ways that you and I worship God, and it begins with turning from your sin and trusting Jesus. That's where it starts. But it continues as each and every day we exchange our trust and our treasure in this world for trust and treasure in God.